this is Curious Ginny, and you're listening to What's Your Story? Audio and today we'll be talking about history and privilege. And I brought in today Paul and Keith, who were Glendon alumni. Alumni? What's the word for that? Alumni. Alumni. Um, and Simon, who's a current Glendon student. Uh, so they're here to share their stories about growing up and how uh, that shaped their university experience at Glendon. Um, so yeah, so you guys want to introduce yourselves, talk about yourselves a little bit? Yeah, so hello. So as Jimmy said, I'm Simon. Uh, yeah, I do currently go to Glendon. Uh, I'm also uh, Ginny's uh, hopefully permanent roommate, um, aka we're dating. She didn't oh mention that. Um, but yeah. I don't uh, think I could say that. Could well, I say that? I yeah. Just, yeah, I mean, that's the truth. So. <laughs> I'm not going to lie about our relationship status. Uh, yeah, and so I'm a currently a Glendon student. I'm studying political science. I'm graduating soon. Uh, and then I'm going to be going to do sort of law school or teacher's college or public policy grad school. We'll see who takes me. The world is your oyster. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Paula. I'm Janice's sister. That's how I know her. Oh. I graduated <laughs> Glendon in 2013. I majored in English. I almost majored in economic studies, but I did not. I did not know that. <laughs> I, I did not finish that degree. <laughs> I switched majors. Um, and what I'm doing right now is I'm a policy analyst for the Ministry of Education. Cool. And my name is Keith. I am Paula's husband. We met at Glendon, where I was originally studying a specialized English program. I then later transferred to York University's main campus to finish my degree in humanities with a focus on East Asian studies and American literature. And currently, I don't do much, but I work in comic books. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's doing things. <laughs> comic things are important. And how do you know Ginny? And I know Ginny you know from being married to Paula. <laughs> Which happens to be my sister. Who happens, yeah. So you are my sister-in-law. Ah. Uh. I it see. all connects. <laughs> connects. As we can see, Ginny <laughs> dug real deep into a Rolodex of uh, guests. Yes, I, I don't have a lot of friends, so I <laughs> just call my family members. We don't really like Ginny all that much. We just kind of. Although the criteria is Glendon alumni. It's true. So, yeah. it's true. Oh. so really, the question is what does this say about Glendon as a school? If it, we're all. <laughs> <laughs> it means we're tight knit and a community. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, so that's the one thing I wanted to do in this podcast because we all have Glennon in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this is where we're going to slowly talk about like our differences and how that differences made us who we are today and how that kind of affected our lives when we were at Glennon. Um, so since you um, introduced yourself first, um, where, did, where were you born? Where did you grow up so i was born in regina saskatchewan um but moved to toronto pretty early so around six um because our my parents got jobs here uh and so i'm basically a toronto guy grew up here um haven't really lived anywhere else cool paula i was born in manila philippines and i moved here i can't remember when I moved here. I think I was either 12 or 13 or 11. <laughs> so between the ages. You moved of here, like, though, is not Toronto. 
No, sorry, yes, to Quebec. Yes, so I immigrated to Canada. And I went to high school in Quebec, secondary one, as they say there. (laughs) And then I moved to Toronto for university. And I stayed. You stayed here. (laughs) When I graduated, yes. And Keith? And I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And I uh, went to college originally in the United States for a bit. And then I took a lot of time off after not having an enjoyable experience at at college, uh, which we call it college in the States. And I uh, took some time off, worked uh, for AT&T for a few years, and then decided I didn't want to do telecom for the rest of my life. And I decided to go back to school, and that's when I... uh, Packed up all my stuff and moved to Toronto and arrived at Glendon campus, moved into res and didn't move out for five years. We had a strike in between, so I had uh, an extra year. Classic. Um, classic. Um, yeah, and moved out, graduated, you know, in 2010, 2011, I guess, and uh, met Paula um, during my fourth year at Glendon, and we started dating, and then I decided to stay and get my permanent residency and we got married and I'm still here 12, 12 <laughs> plus years going do you, so. guys, do you guys know how I snuck into Glendon? snuck in I snuck in so I um, first of all it's important to note that the first uh, chunk of my academic life I was objectively terrible <laughs> at being a student and so my high school marks were not that great but I did go to a semi sort of fancy acting high school Mm. So, Etobicoke School of the Arts. Uh, and so I applied for the Glendon Drama Program after having taken a year off to be like an drama, actor. Drama studies? Drama studies. And so I took the year off to be an actor and applied for drama studies and they accepted mm. me immediately. Um, but then I think I kind of I kind of snuck in because I then immediately transferred out of the drama studies program. Oh, <laughs> I see. And so I think, you know, I don't know this for sure, but there's probably a good chance that I wouldn't have been accepted had I applied anywhere else. Um, so then I was history and then transferred. Wait, you, but you did apply, you, you applied to U of T and you got in. Right, for drama studies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then so you I, chose Glendon. Yeah, chose Glendon um, and then switched out of drama studies into history. And right. then history <laughs> into, um, into political science. And also I had two strikes. Oh my god! Oh my god! I had two strikes too. <laughs> yeah, we, had, we both had well, two strikes. I had zero strikes. We, I was the lucky one. Yeah. And we also had the longest strike in Canadian university history. So. Really. Yeah, it was the longest. It was like what? I don't know. Four months. I don't remember. I just three months. That back a lot. Of, it was a lot of months. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So we we probably been here a bit longer than we should yeah. have been. That's fine. It happens. <laughs> um, so you said you were born in Saskatchewan. Yes. Did you ever like go to school there, or, or like I don't know? I mean, preschool? I did school. Preschool, um, sort of kindergarten. I don't really remember it honestly. The thing is, so you remember little flashes of when you were like six. So I remember my Saskatchewan street, and I remember <laughs> some vague Saskatchewan neighbors. And I remember vast swaths of, of empty nothingness that is the Saskatchewan climate. Uh, but I don't really, we didn't go to school there. 
unfortunately. Okay. Uh, yeah. But you probably remember like your primary school in Tor- Toronto. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how was that like? Well, I did French immersion. Donc tout le chose c'est français. Um, and so that was it was weird because um, everything was in French except for the courses um, that they make you take to prepare for EQAO which right. is the standardized testing in, in Ontario that they make us do oh. uh, which by the way EQAO I don't know if you know this but it stands for Evil Questions Attack Ontario <laughs> <laughs> that is the name uh, yeah so it was there was a lot of sort of prepping for that in English but everything else was in French because it was supposed to be French version Okay. Wait, this was in grade school. Yeah, grade one to grade eight. And then when high school hit, were you still in French immersion? High school hit. I was. I went to my weird art school. Right. The yes. arts high school. S-S-A? It's, it's ESA. S what? The typical school of the arts. Oh. ESA. Okay. Um. How about you, Paula? How was your school in Manila like? In Manila, well, I'm older so i need to think back um i remember i went to montessori i went to montessori too yes uh, did we go to the same montessori where did you go obi i went to obi oh my god <laughs> how do we not know this okay so we went to the same montessori. i swear we're sisters <laughs> yes um so I went to Montessori, and what I remember is a well. I feel like this is a lot. These this is a lot for a lot of schools in Manila because the Philippines is a very Catholic country, so oh, yeah. religion played a huge role in any kind of setting, especially school. Yeah. So, um, and even when I went to the later. Um, elementary years I went to Miriam College mm-hmm. um, which was taught by nuns historically <laughs> how Catholic could you like, <laughs> yeah so that's I think that's what really stuck with me was the religious aspect aspect yeah. and um, I think also in the Philippines and Asian countries school is a huge huge part of I mean, like, the emphasis on academic excellence oh, yeah. uh, is drilled into you from the moment you're born, basically. basically. <laughs> um, you're just supposed to get, like, good grades and study hard. And Nothing like, below, like, 95. Yeah. If you got, like, almost in, like, like an 85, like, something's wrong with you. It's disappointing. It's disappointing. So, like, how did that change when you moved to Quebec? Well... First of all, when we moved, my when my mom told me we were immigrating to Canada, it was like, oh, cool, I speak English, they speak English, that's fine. <laughs> but then they're like, no, you're moving to Quebec, you have to learn this entire new language, and you're starting in high school, which is like, like the worst. <laughs> um, it's like so, the fine print of like... Yeah, so <laughs> that culture shock, and not just like culture but language as well the emphasis was less on getting good grades but more on like how do I learn this language like how do I integrate in this new culture that I'm in like how do I make friends but I can't communicate with them mm-hmm. like there's snow now like what is happening <laughs> so yeah, yeah that's and it was it. not a catholic school no, no, no. Okay. I mean, especially in Quebec because they have that history with yeah. the Catholic Church. They're very secular. Yeah. Yes. That's very true. 
about you, Keith? How is the U.S. of A? Uh, so I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a, <clears throat> at least during the time that I grew up, um, is a, a very segregated city mm-hmm. uh, in both terms of race and class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, basically, if, if you had any ability to, you would send your children to uh, to private school if you could. Um, so I went, and St. Louis is also a, a Catholic city. It was predominantly, um, it was a, originally a French trading post, right. and then uh, had a, an influx of um, of a lot of Irish immigrants at one point, I think. So that kept a lot of the Catholicism going. So it's it was, and then the Italian immigrants that came through in another wave were also extremely Catholic. So St. Louis is a Catholic city. It's mm-hmm. it's like Boston in that respect. Okay. Um, uh, so it, I went to Catholic school. My family is Catholic, but they're not Irish Catholic or Italian Catholic. My family is Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I went to Catholic school my whole life. I went to a small uh, Catholic school, and then I went to a Jesuit. Uh, high school, an all boys Jesuit high school. Uh, And that high school uh, was a college preparatory Jesuit school that was all boys, as I just said. Uh, I lasted there about two and a half years uh, before I I left, went to public school for about two weeks, and then was like, yeah, I don't think I want to do public school either. So (laughs) yeah, so I ended up doing a college preparatory uh, program through the American School of Correspondence, which is a um, a school that a lot of actors uh, use, professional tennis players, professional like golf kids, like anybody that can't be on a a traditional like nine or like eight in the morning to three thirty schedule. Okay. Uh, do a lot of a lot of that. So I finished up my senior year of high school um, through the American School of Correspondence. And then I went to college uh, after that. And uh, so I, I would say that, like, the amount of changes that I went through in high school from yeah. that Jesuit school uh, to, you know, finally ending up at Glendon, I've said this a lot, is that I, I basically walked into Glendon with a 10th grade education. For all, like, all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. I had a 10th grade education. However, I had a, a 10th grade education at a college preparatory Jesuit school. So I was actually like right right prepared. Yeah. Like I honestly like I really the only hiccups I had were you know when I was learning essays we were using the Chicago manual and then at wow. some point over the years that it changed to, to what it was it the uh, APA. APA form which I had never really learned. And then there's the MLA. Oh, it was MLA format which was like new-ish kind of I when I was I in high school. So I had to like learn that. And I will still say that that's my biggest issue is that um, I feel like I know how to write and cite papers for people that are like 50 years old <laughs> and older. But if I'm dealing with anybody like 40 or younger that's done master's programs in Canada, they switched over to MLA format so long ago that like I'm still learning learning how to how they want things sometimes or how they want information presented to them so i will say chicago is objectively the better citation style i agree with you very simple it is the better one because you don't go out and those stupid little quotes in your in your paper (laughs) that are annoying to read citation 
intoxications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those take away from the flow you're trying to make. I'd rather have a little, a little number, a little yes. footnote. Um, actually, I think it's something that I thought would be interesting just to kind of touch on um, was the role of religion in your folks' school. Because what mm-hmm. I'll tell you is, um, especially Christianity, was utterly devoid in the school that I went to, right? It was ne- we never even mentioned it really. In fact, I knew more about Hanukkah than I did about Christmas. Really? Yeah, no, no. The, because so the Christmas that we were peddled was not the kind of the, the Christian holiday, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It was the sort of the secular holiday stuff. Capitalistic. Yeah. Santa Claus on a Coke can. Yeah, yeah. Santa Claus <laughs> and like sort of weird plants that are red and green and snow and in a sort of. Ponciata plants and snow in places that like you wouldn't expect there to be snow, right? And that is not really the Christian holiday. And so I and also my family is not particularly religious. We're technically Anglican, but we never go to churches, so I don't know that I would even count myself as that. And so really, religions had effectively no like no influence on my life, other than sort of the cultural factors in the background, right? And so, do you think that like religion? Played a role in your Sam education. Sam just at stole all? my thunder. <laughs> was that your question? Must be one of my questions. I see. Oh. You're my interviewer. So just re-record <laughs> this, but just re-record everything that he said, and then just cut that out. It's fine. I'll just keep it in there. I'll stop trying to contribute to the conversation. Oh, maybe I'll answer uh, a question. Yeah. So what was your question? <laughs> How did religion play into your education? Well, same thing with Paula, like. Because I, I was in Manila until my second year of high school, and now I just realized most of my schools were Catholic, like, name, like, nursery, it was called, like, Sacred Heart, and then I went to, like, prep, which, like, I don't know, like, between, like, nursery and grade school, and that was called Holy Trinity, and then I go to, um, um, well, I guess Obi was, I think Obi was very Catholic, and it's... Yeah, it oh had my. a giant like an angel, angel. <laughs> right. in the building. Yeah, and like, Obi meant um, operational brotherhood, which I'm not sure why. Um, it could just be a sect of the people that were in charge in, of that school. Like my school was Jesuit, so we had brothers, uh, you know, that were probably teaching us. seems like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and where did where did you go to high school? Sorry. Well, high school was still in Obi. Well, oh, my grade wait. school was called Pinecrest, so nothing religious with that. No. And then I went to OB. I was in yeah. OB for two years. And I think that's what I remember the most, because I don't think... I remember we had religious, like, religion class, and... But it was weird, because you could kind of identify yourself as, like, non-Catholic, and you had, like, a different type of um, assignment. Yeah, You had different right. kinds of, like... like um, I think it was like every Monday we had to go to like the auditorium because there's this whole mass thing and you would sit every week yeah yeah every week but because I didn't identify as like Catholic I sat a little bit at the back <laughs> while you like still like you pretty much still go to like this mass but you're just not well, you're not part involved of it. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think for me what really to this day still sticks out is that um most of the, the like schooling or education was structured around um, like sacraments. So basically like grade two is like your first communion and then grade seven is like your confirmation. Yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> your first confession. So that like at 
so at school, like, they teach you about that, and then, like, you, yeah. you learn oh, yeah, how to do I re- that I in school. I had that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, like, very bizarre. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back, because yeah. here, it's so different. It's not the same case. Yeah. Like, we have mass at schools, and... Yeah, I remember every school. morning you would cite, like, the Philippine, like, national anthem, and then... And pray. And you'll pray. Pray, yeah. That's Look, it kind of shows what the... Because that was... Was that... Was that sort of a private sort of school you folks were going to or was it like a it sort of government or public or anything like that private private the Montessori was private for sure but I think Barium is not right or is it a private private remember. owned by the church I don't know well, whoever owned it, they're clearly trying to turn you into good Catholics oh yeah right and I think it, it also kind of is interesting because uh, in states where there's a, a separation of church and state where they actively try to, it seems, discourage you from, from being that. Right? Again, because the, all of the religious imagery is removed from any, any of your sort of experiences, you don't get that education that you would be getting from a religious school, so you don't become a religious person. Right? It's yeah. a way that, that the state seems you to be keep, secularizing yeah. kids. Yeah. Right? I just thought that was interesting. And Miriam, the high school I went to, is all, all girls. Yeah, I remember I almost went to St. Paul and it was basically almost the same thing mm-hmm. and then I was like mm, nope my mom was like yeah we're not putting you here <laughs> so I didn't end up there um, yeah so religion I feel like is a very like big aspect in like in school and and like in terms of like I don't know like, maybe other topics as well like I remember like one thing that I didn't really learn about at least in Manila was the whole thing about like Columbus and like how he like you know conquered America and I mean why would that why would that be necessarily on the Philippines curriculum curriculum well I remember like we did like the whole there was a year that we did like Asian history and we did Mm -hmm. like a little bit of American history but like even then it was the whole just simple as like oh this guy discovered America and like the rest is history like we moved on most every history class that you're going to take is going to be centered on the location in which you're taking that class yeah. like it's you know and and it's and it's also very region specific too because especially you know in the united states and i don't know what it's like in canada for you know younger kids education but every state chooses its curriculum it's not federally mandated so here while, it's provincial yeah, yeah. It's, it's so like it's the same. Like so to your point, Simon, what you were saying about uh, states that separate church and state, there's currently a lawsuit going on in, I think it's Tennessee, uh, because oh while you may think that there's a separation of church and state, the Bible Belt's public schools tend to be even more indoctrinating of Christianity, uh, of Protestantism, um, because they're trying to find little loopholes around things. In Arizona, there's a law that was passed that they forced through that was, if a parent donates a sign, uh, you have to put it up. So all these religious parents are donating signs for these classrooms, such as like with God prayers and things like that. So there's all these sorts of lawsuits, which is actually the one thing about in the U.S., or at least in I would say prominently Catholic areas, Catholic school mm-hmm. is a, I mean, I've known people that were what I would consider like 
Protestant Christians and Catholics, and I would say they're very different. Uh, Catholic school was, for at least in my experience and my sister's experience, was a lot of cultural things about here's what we do as a Catholic culture, but our religion classes were more focused on not indoctrination, but more about the history of the religion, why it came to be, the moralities that were important at the time, why we believe, why the church believes these things. And then in high school, almost all of our religion classes were actually world religion classes. Um, so, I mean, our, by the time we ended up graduating, most of our people in our student class were not more Catholic. If anything, they were less Catholic because they were forced, because it was a private school, the parents wanted the best, broadest education, so the religion classes were like these super world religion classes. So it was like having an extra history class. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I think it's really... If I had a choice between sending my kid to a Catholic school in the States or sending... If I lived in a religious Bible Belty area, obviously if you're in, uh, you know, New York City or Vermont or whatever, I'm sure there's, you know, liberal meccas or whatever. But if I'm unfortunately having to live in a place where the majority of the public does not necessarily match my values, I would definitely want to fall back onto a type of education that I know will at least not be sneaky about it. Um, I highly recommend reading about this lawsuit. It's nuts. Yeah, I, I kind nuts. of vaguely, I kind of vaguely heard about this. Yeah, I also I think what's also interesting about school is what they choose not to teach. Mm-hmm. And so there's one thing where they focus on, and then there's other things where they totally like don't mention it. Right. And actually, in Canada, what I find interesting is that we don't mention um, what happened to Indigenous folks. Yeah. So we have a whole curriculum on Indigenous cultures right. here. Right. We learn about like the Mohawks and the Iroquois. And sort of all the various different Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee and all those, all those folks, right? We learn about them. We know like where they were, especially sort of you learn about the tribe that lived in the chunk of Canada mm-hmm. that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. Like Manitoba learns about um, the Métis and stuff like that, right? Um, but what we don't learn is what happened to them, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So we learn where they were, and then we jump forward a couple a couple mm-hmm. decades, and oh, Canada's here. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so, and at no point do we mention all of the history of why Canada's here and why these tribes are not here. It's kind of swept under the rug, yeah. and it's only now, like as an adult, that I'm learning about everything that happened and it's like exactly. residential schools the 60s school what happened with the inuit and the yeah. slaughter of the dogs like how they were displaced like it's insane how we're yeah. just, like how i didn't learn about not... this until like glendon because like i remember like even when i was in quebec it was just oh no it was it was, it like, was a non-issue and we did the whole like the ministry exam in history like right. it was just like oh who are the people who are here first and like how did they trade it like their fur and and it stops there and it just stops there it's like oh and then the next wave of, <laughs> of like immigrants this mm-hmm. happened and it's like well the fact that a lot of these things and the same thing happens in the states you know we have a shared history of genocide and the same thing happens in the u.s about that and it leads to misinformation and misunderstandings of things and and when you don't know really what's happening you can't really properly conceptualize like what somebody else might be going through or whatever their what their history might be um it's 
it's a very difficult thing and, and that's where it comes down to these states and provinces choose what the curriculum is um and i mean i don't know in the u.s like they're failing <laughs> still failing math and science so what are we doing like what i mean like you can't say like we're we're focusing more on history and stuff like that because we're leaving chunks out yeah um and definitely like you have teacher biases as well you know oh, yeah. anything that's mm-hmm. you know subjective you know and even all the way up to university professors choose how much effort they put into their syllabus or their curriculum or not you know all they have to do is get the class approved <laughs> what and they actually it. teach in it isn't necessarily it to, yeah, audited that. very well and also i feel so. like the textbooks that we have are outdated. written by <laughs> not just outdated but written by certain perspectives that mm-hmm. don't reflect yeah. the actual diversity or the like it's from a very like a colonial perspective yeah, and we don't have textbook textbooks by indigenous like authors or historians yeah, that are taught. Yeah. I'm sure they we have yeah. some, but that's something that like the one of my um, well not one but some of my professors like in the comms department like made sure like that wasn't the case, and they told us like it's very important when like when you go through a syllabus you actually take time to understand where is this reading from, mm-hmm. who is this author, what does this author look like, and what have they done in the past years because it's it, it would be too like hypocritical for a class to be talking about you know like new ideas for example like in communications but then all your authors are like old white dead men well i think but that it's interesting because universities have the ability to do that universities have the ability to create their own kind of curriculum and their ability to maybe go against whatever it is the public school system is trying to teach in fact, I think in a lot of ways universities these days explicitly exist, especially in sort of the liberal arts, to deprogram whatever you've been programmed to think mm-hmm. uh, in sort of middle school and, and high school. Especially, especially here, especially in certain sections of, of Glendon. Um, you know, it had to be basically beaten into us that we were part of a European colonial empire, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we have all of the hallmarks of that, right? Uh, and it ain't going away yeah. just because you learn that you're part of it. Yeah. You're still reaping all the benefits by living in the city of Toronto. And you know what I mean? Like it's, you're part of it and it's not changing. Yeah. You know? That kind of actually goes, that speaks to privilege. Right. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. yeah. Because we were privileged enough to live as, and actually my own personal story speaks to this equal quite a bit um because my uh granny grew up in uh british india oh mm, my gosh right uh when that was like a thing part, when that was a thing <laughs> right. right and also it makes you think that that really wasn't all that long ago mm-hmm. right india i don't know exactly what the date was but the india separates from britain in like the late 40s mm-hmm. right which well, was, yeah it was covered in the crown so yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah which was like what 80 years ago which is not Literally no, a lifetime of people are people are still alive. Yeah. That yeah. lived through that. Yeah. 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 And so and that means that we had kind of this not upper class per se, mm-hmm. but sort of this colonial privilege. Privilege. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so to recognize this kind of thing I think is probably very important and probably the primary reason that universities in lib- in the liberal arts exist yeah. at the moment is to create this consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but the thing is, I don't think 
most people go to these programs, right? Mm-hmm. And so those are the percentages of the people that go to liberal arts. Um, a, because it's actively discouraged, mm-hmm. right? How many times have you heard, oh, you're not going to make any money if you go into liberal arts? You know? Well, I mean, but they're correct. Yeah, but, but why? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, so you're told that, and then it's made to be true because of other things are more. Valid. Yes, because right. it creates a hiring bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it, it, it's it's actively discouraged, and then those people that get degrees in business, in business or another program that's um, Special- more specialized carries that prejudice out into um, out into the workforce and then they enforce that in their hiring so you know now it's um, every degree they're looking for is super specialized specialized in something that is not broad range research and education mm-hmm. you know it's um, when I first uh, started doing American literature I spoke with one of my professors at York and one of the reasons I wanted to do American literature in Canada so you can actually get a less biased opinion and, and a more, un, uh, like, a, an understanding of it from an outsider's perspective rather than just, like, a rooting for the home team sort of perspective. And that's when I understood after taking a few years of American lit classes was that American literature in general really is just colonial literature from this small 200 mile radius Um, and it isn't geographic to the continent it is purely based on where was the american colonies uh, the british colonies that became the united states of america and then american literature expands as the white settlers expanded west my family never lived in those colonies my family lived on the other side of the continent we have a rich history of all sorts of nonfiction information, you know, fictional stories, collections of poetry um, that is completely erased from American literature. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist because it was written in a language that was not English. It is American. You know, I always, my, we talk about how we shape the world. Um, the United States of America, the majority of it is Latin America. No one will ever say that. They don't understand it. But if you live in Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, uh, California, Nevada, if you live in Sacramento, San Francisco, San Jose, San Diego, Los Angeles, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, all of these, Pueblo, Colorado, all these places existed before. You are living in Latin America. You know, it Mexico is North America. It's not in South America. It's not some magical place. The erasure of those people um, from the tapestry of North America is is gone. It also doesn't mean that there was massive problems. Spain was also a terrible colonizer. Yep. Um, Philippines. Yeah. Yep. As you know, Paul and I talk about our shared history of that. Um, but I will say that one of the major differences that I've learned uh, in studying like my history is that there was the Spanish that came through that stayed. They were like really here to like fight wars, get minerals, and like leave. <laughs> yeah. The British were coming for religious freedom. Yeah. The Spanish were coming for religious indoctrination. Mm-hmm. So they really didn't come in the same waves of settlements. 
So what's funny is that like the places you go that were highly settled, most of those people ended up being super mixed really fast. Where in British uh, colonized United States, I mean, we had the Trail of Tears, very similar to what was going on in Canada at the same time. It was just like, there's, we have enough people from England coming over. So we'll just take you, either murder you or forcibly remove you. Well, also, I mean, so the British colonies were based on a version of white supremacy mm. that the Spanish colonies, while there definitely was an element of it, it was a different kind of form. Mm-hmm. You still, if you were white in a Spanish or Portuguese colony, you were considered upper class, but the definition of white was not quite as strict. Right, so white was more tied to class right. and mm-hmm. wealth and and uh, sort of social status. I whereas whereas in British colonies, mm-hmm. it was explicitly tied to a concept of race and speciesism, and it's not an accident, right? Spain is arriving in sort of the fifteenth century before this idea of social Darwinism, right, and sort of this idea of evolution and racial purity and they all that stuff. They also had contact with Africa and the and the Muslim wars and being taken over yep. by Muslim Muslim kingdoms and stuff. So I think that they were uh, they were understanding that they weren't. Um, Supreme on an island by itself, I guess. Yeah, but also they were still terrible. I'm not trying to say they were. <laughs> yeah, like you but, know. But this was sort of shaped by really these days thoroughly disproven, mm-hmm. but deeply believed at the time um, pseudoscience. Right. Mm-hmm. A belief in in the badness of racial mixing mm-hmm. that you are somehow devolving the white race. Right. And that is the principle that the North American British colonies are fundamentally entwined with we still get that today like yeah yeah, definitely still exists and actually what i think is interesting when we're looking at the canadian case is that we often hide our own sins by saying that we are not as bad as the americans Mm. right so what often happens when in terms to the the, what has what has happened to indigenous people here is to say well at least we still have some indigenous people in the United States, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, but, you know, it's not like Canada has none horrific things to indigenous people. Right. And it is not an accident that they are by far the minority when they used to be the majority in this place. That didn't happen by accident. But because we were not, a, like, you know, outwardly vicious, we were far more sneaky about it. Than the Americans were. The Americans tended to just send the cavalry in and gun people down. Right. Whereas the British would dispossess them with contract law. <laughs> right? And then, or and take then, their children and put yeah, them in yeah. schools. Take their children and yeah. educate them and make mm-hmm. them good citizens while you know doing cultural genocide. I don't want to get this super off topic, Jane, <laughs> but do you ever find, like, I find that North Americans in general, especially like English based North Americans, are always searching for an identity. Uh, a cultural identity, right? Uh, something that they can g- grab onto. Um, and I always find that, like, you know, you could have a bit more pride in, in North American indigenous identity if maybe you'd started off your relationships a little bit better. You know, like, maybe yeah. you could have been a, you know. Well, in Canada's case, I think that's particularly interesting because up until, like, the 60s, mm-hmm. we believed ourselves to be British. Mm. Right, because remember, Canada exists as a reaction to the United States. Right, the people that come here often are a running away from the revolution, right. or b are coming directly from the British Royalists. Isles. Mm-hmm. Right, and so these are folks that actually um, 
want to be British and identify heavily with, with Britain. And so I think that's particularly more true in Canada as we distance ourselves from the British and actually start to tie ourselves more to the United States. So Economically, that makes a lot right? of sense. And then. then we're trying to figure out, oh, we're not British, what the heck, mm-hmm. what the heck does it mean to be Canadian if you're not British subjects? So that's that makes a lot of sense. Well, I used to work after graduation, I used to work... Um, in an area of Toronto that had an extremely high South African population um, that had all come over post-apartheid. And I was like, well, why aren't you... St- I mean, your country's finally on a path to get better. Why did you all of a sudden leave? Oh, well, they wanted to just come to the next colony that was like them so they could avoid all... You know, like, I kind of looked at those people with a different set of eyes at that point. It's like, oh, you, you, you left when it was inconvenient for you. Like, so... Yeah, but it makes sense that Canada has been kind of that, uh, still a British loyalist haven. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and that's where the whole like English academic discourse comes in as well, where you like basically ignore everything that's not English. Mm. And then in class, we spoke about like other academic discourses, like I think was it Spain? I don't remember. We were talking about Portugal. like I think it was Portugal. Yeah, it was Portugal. Yeah, and they're talking about, like, how even, like, when things are translated from, like, Portuguese to English, it it's ridiculous because it already loses, like, the main message in order for us to understand in English what that actually meant. But it mm. also means something else to them. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so... We kind of need to wrap up. Um, I promised 45 minutes for this podcast. Um, you got carried away. I'm sorry. Yeah. So maybe just um, one of the last questions is, um, I don't know, like, do you think like your past experiences in school kind of shaped um, like your times during Glennon? Like how you saw like, or like when you started to... Um, learn certain topics such as like you know like indigenous people and colonialism and stuff like that so for me definitely so if you ever read any um um, russian revolutionary stuff every character has this moment where they come to marxism Mm. (laughs) right and so they they like that some professor introduces them to something or like they read some passage and they're like, no, they're enlightened and, and they join the revolution, right? Um, I won't say that I became a communist, that's not true. Um, but I did, you know, get uh, introduced to a lot of the stuff that I mentioned about the Canadian colonial past and also yeah. sort of more critical stuff, some more socialist stuff. And so I definitely would say that Glendon, in many ways, hardened my own politics. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I start uh, to be so full disclosure here. I mean, I, my family's fairly involved with Canada's most left-wing party, and so I had a pretty left-wing bias to begin with. While growing, but up. it wasn't based on any facts that I knew myself. It was based on just the fact that this is what I've always believed sure. to be right. You were born of, into. Yeah, I was essentially born into an ideology, right? Um, so. You know, but then I, I came to Glendon and I actually like read facts that that actually proved the things I thought already. And so, so you're like, it, oh, it's like, oh, I believe this so this much stronger now, now, and I can actually <laughs> articulate it and I know what it means. So I guess I had my my coming to enlightenment moment here at Glendon, and so it's probably shaped my world view in in a more critical way than it would have been otherwise. Cool, Paula. I think um, 
I learned a lot of the indigenous stuff after Glendon, actually, unfortunately. <laughs> um, what I learned during Glendon was not to put so much emphasis into, I don't know if that's a good thing, like <laughs> academic excellence, but more about like the connections and the, the actual student life, mm -hmm. that the, the stuff that you kind of, like when, in, when I was in the Philippines, leaving the wayside like I never made as many connections and friendships um your social life comes uh, last exactly exactly so that's what I learned on my blended experience and you're pretty involved though yes yeah, so I like was uh editor-in-chief of pro tem um I went to all the social stuff yeah all the pub nights all the pub nights all the extracurricular um Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I moved to Canada and went to Glendon because I, I wanted to experience life in a more um, democratic socialist atmosphere. And I think that once I got here, I kind of realized that um, there are no half measures in things and that... Um, a lot of things that we fight for that people were really passionate about. The more and more I learned about what I really learned at Glendon was how to do research. Oh yeah. Like what I really learned is how to look at things from multiple different angles and perspectives and try to understand why people are saying these things. And what I really feel like I learned was that um, so a lot of the things that we are passionate about if we continue if we just look at why we're thinking that and what we think about what it could do how it could benefit us sometimes I feel like if you just keep following that chain of thought you realize that a lot of things that we fight for today are band-aid solutions mm -hmm. and if anything they just complicate things and cause more problems down the road um, the I learned a lot about um, unintended Kind of like consequences like you do one thing and it leads to something that you <laughs> polish we had listened to a podcast which is about the design and how like if you design support systems and backup systems for things mm -hmm. those backup systems moving parts can cause failure which causes other things these chain yeah. reactions <laughs> the more we create larger systems the more we create more and more and more the harder it is to maintain and i'd say that like the thing that i learned most uh, through all my schooling and, and universities that sometimes there's just so much going on um, that the more you do and the more you stretch yourself and the more you try to be aware of everything and do everything is the less you're actually doing anything at all. Yeah, um, it gets overwhelming. It does. And I think the thing that I learned the most um, was actually after university, which was just somebody was was asking about like charitable contributions and like, oh, well you can get five dollars here and support this, is that the world would be a better place if everyone just chose one thing to be really passionate about, to, to focus all their energy on. If everybody just did that, you'd actually make a bigger impact than if you today cared about this and tomorrow cared about that in yeah. half measures. Um, and I think that the liberal arts program at Glendon was something that like definitely gave me the tools to start researching where I wanna like focus my attention what I really 
find the important things to believe in, I guess. And what um, you could do, like, with your own time and your entire... And what's you know, feasible. And yeah. kind of know, like, what things are kind of a lost cause, why they might be a lost cause for right now. So I, I, could, I could make a quick point, which you can edit out later if you feel like this. <laughs> okay, we'll um, see. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was very interesting that you said uh, you came here to live in a democratic socialist country. Yes. And I think Americans have this concept that because Canada has the very basics of public service, yes. yeah. that we're somehow a socialist country. You know, I, and I will say this as a, as a borderline socialist person myself and say we are really not. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> we no. We are a deeply capitalist country mm-hmm. that has a basic public service. But coming from right. America where there right. is where there no basic. None at all. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's very interesting <laughs> in that the perception that Canada is like this this liberal socialist. Listen, hey, if you got no Americans. food in your cabinet, somebody gives you a bag of chips, you're like, this yes, is paradise. So yeah. coming from America where it's like you're paying $700 a month for basic health care. And you still have co-pays. Yeah. To just have it come out of your taxes yeah. is like a utopia. Yeah. So again, it's like even small things are very... Just uh, walking down the street yeah. without but, guns. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. I find it very interesting also that like in terms of Canadian self-image, mm-hmm. we buy into that ourselves because the American system often is so broken. Which and is ours why I'm is so like, hopeful. That if America finally gets like Bernie Sanders in or somebody when they start to do these things and really force change, Canada's going to have to go even harder. Oh, yeah. We have to be better than you. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's my hedging bet right there. Coming up yeah. in November. Bernie Ward in 2020. Oh. Okay. No. So, okay. I think that's it for now. Um, great conversation. I appreciate everyone's help. Um, so, yeah. So, I guess thank you, Simon. Paula and Keith. Um, So stay tuned for possibly my next episode. Goodbye. Bye. Audio Hub.